0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me, as always, to talk about actual, meaningful NBA basketball is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash.
1: Oh man, it's it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful morning here in Toronto. The sun is out. You know, the preseason has given way to the regular season, as you said. We've got three nights worth of actual NBA basketball to talk about. There's... You know, a a lot of great ball, but we also got a lot of just hate to get out when it comes to trash teams, uh, fugazis, clowns, frauds, and again, some good teams too. Don't get me wrong. We're going to praise some good basketball too, but it's really fun when we have a balance of both. And oh boy, did some teams ensure that we have a balance of both today.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're going to obviously overreact to some very small sample sizes and make sweeping proclamations about uh, the state. Of those various clowns, fugazis, contenders, pretenders, etc. I feel like we have to start with a team that fits every definition of what you just laid out. The Philadelphia 76ers, look, we did a bold predictions episode, and they are bold predictions. By definition, they are things that we had deemed unlikely to happen. And I'm also very wary, obviously, of reacting to a two-game sample. So... I am not going to ask for a mulligan on my Sixers prediction just yet. My I thought Joel you were going to say I don't want to
1: overreact to a two-game sample, so I'll let you do it and then throw it to me.
0: Well, the Embiid thing we can get into. He started last season slow as well, yeah, and then obviously really kicked it into gear. So I think he'll be fine. I think the Sixers will be fine, but I do think it is a not great sign that this team that I had picked to finally get to the conference finals for the first time in 20 plus years lost in back-to-back games to its two main competitors in the Eastern conference, both of whom were missing crucial starters. And obviously it was a bad sign that Embiid looked the way that he did in those two games. Now maybe you could flip that around and say, You know, on the other hand, it's a really encouraging sign that James Harden looked as good as he did. Even in spite of that, I think there are still a couple red flags with Harden, but no denying he looked fantastic. What do you think, Cash? I mean, the the Sixers, they're 0-2. They had put up a good fight against Milwaukee, which I don't think you really say in the game against Boston. What do you make of this team so far?
1: Well, I do... Like, I agree with both your points there. First of all, yes, it is a two-game sample size at the beginning of the season. Joel Embiid also started last season slow. um, And, you know, I I tell people this every year. I feel like I say it on the pod every year on this episode. We're kind of going through the first few games is like this exact same two-game performance from Joel Embiid in January is nothing. It's called a slump. And literally every player, even the guy who ends up winning MVP, has them right? Over the course of an 82 game season. It's just when it's the first two games of the season and it's the only sample size, then it's like, whether joking or not, yeah, you'll have people being like, why well, is he washed? Is he, you know, is it, is it still the thumb that he had surgery? We're like, what is it? When really it could just be, well, it's a two game slump and it was going to happen multiple times throughout the year. It just so happened to happen in the first two games. It's all we have to work with right now. That out of the way and knowing Joel Embiid's going to be fine. His production will be there. He'll be in the MVP race by the end of the year. However, you also mentioned another good point, which is that the two losses they've suffered already are to two teams that they should be fighting for at the top of the East. And obviously, yeah, you don't want to overreact and be like, well, they lost these two games are clearly not going to be in the top two. But how much, have, you know, how much time have we spent already leading up to this season talking about not just the league as a whole, but the Eastern Conference, how tight it is, how compact it is, how tight those standings are going to be between... You know even like the number two seed maybe and the play-in team might only be a few games now, I'm not saying the Sixers are going to fall into the play-in because they lost two these two games but you know as much as I said if this happened in January it would just be a slump at the same time two losses in October don't mean less than two losses in January or February March or April so it, it is a tough start for them and particularly because the Celtics are missing Robert Williams and the Bucs were missing Chris Middleton, and their offense hasn't exactly looked good, like, so far either. And it, and the Milwaukee game, I think if I was a Sixers fan, would bother me more. Because it's like, that was the Sixers home opener. It's another tough battle against a tough, like, a top team in the East after you've already lost one of those to start the season. The Bucs are without Chris Middleton. I just, it's one thing to lose although they shouldn't have lost anyway but I think even though it ended up being close at the end obviously the Sixers had a chance to win it even had the lead there late there were large stretches where it almost felt like the Bucks were keeping them at bay the way you know a good team does to a bad team when it's like yeah like you're kind of in it but not really and that to me was pretty stunning given again home opener no Chris Middleton so there, there are some things to be concerned about first and foremost like what the hell's going on with this offense, now, I know the defense was concerning in in on opening night, but oh. off, yeah, <laughs> but but offensively, it mildly, no, but offensively, there like there are concerns here, given that like the obvious joke to make is that you know everyone saw the clip, or I, I assume a lot of people listening to us, if they're listening to an NBA podcast, probably saw the the viral social clip from um, training camp when Doc Rivers was mic'd up talking to James Harden and he's telling him to be more aggressive and stuff. And then one of his lines is like straight up, this ain't no democracy. Like, this isn't a democracy. Like, don't worry, but like, too bad. You know, maybe other people want the ball. It's you and Joel Embiid. And I mean, especially when it comes to Harden, that's what's playing out. Season opener, he had, he took more dribbles than the rest of his, his team combined. And, you know, talk about like not getting Maxi involved enough and, and Embiid not playing well. But then I will say, Last night against the Bucks, yeah, maybe it's still not perfect, Harden. There are some red flags. But last night against the Bucs, I understand why if the numbers end up bearing out like that again, they do. You know, with him taking more dribbles than the rest of the team. Because he's the only one that had it going last night. And James Harden was pretty damn good in that game. James Harden is the only reason the Philadelphia 76ers in their home opener against a Chris Middletonless Milwaukee Bucks team were in the game offensively.
0: So... Dude, Yeah, sorry to to cut you off. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. James Harden is by far the best ball handler on the team. Right. Should be handling the ball way more than anyone else on the team. And how long have they been waiting for a half-court operator who can do what James Harden can do? Like, I don't think that that is a significant issue. I do think Maxi could have been more involved on opening night. Yep. But at the end of the day, yeah, James Harden is going to dribble the ball a lot. Like that is what he is there to do. And he is also going to put other guys in spots to succeed. And on a game like last night where nobody else really has it going, he can take over. And I thought the way that he did it was super interesting because he was hunting the pull up mid range. Like he hit seven mid range jumpers, which was the most that he had ever hit in a game in his career. That one came to us courtesy of Tim Bontemps. And it was Kind of wild to watch that after watching him for years eschew those very shots in favor of, you know, taking step back threes or just getting all the way to the rim. And the Bucs were making a point of running the Sixers off the three point line. I think uh Bud said on media day or during training camp, it's like that was going to be a focus for the Bucs this year. Whereas like in, in the past few years, they've kind of had this defensive strategy where. They want to protect the interior at all costs. And that means giving up a boatload of threes. They don't want to do that anymore. So we saw that they made a point of running the Sixers off the arc. And Harden was really taking what they were giving them and making that mid-range space his territory. So I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, at the end of the day, I, I'm not worried about their offense because Joel Embiid is going to play like Joel Embiid <laughs> at some point in time. And I would honestly just be way more worried about the defense because we, we knew that was going to be a bit of a struggle coming into the season and that it was going to be up to Embiid to paper over a lot of their limitations. And the reason I would be more concerned about that is I feel like his defense has actually been trending the wrong way for a while now in sort of subtle ways. And I don't think he's going to be as bad, especially like he was better in the Bucs game on opening night, that was one of the worst defensive games that I've seen him play, but I I don't know if he is up for that challenge anymore. Like that, that would be a much bigger worry to me than like the turnovers or just the kind of lackadaisical offensive play, because I think that will round into form, but the right
1: that's stuff you don't have to worry about until they're facing elimination.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I I cut you off in the middle of making a point, so I'll let you continue. But no, I also want to say, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not at all concerned about like the Harden pounding the air out of the ball thing because we know that comes with the territory with Harden, and ultimately it hasn't prevented any of his teams from having elite offenses. So, right. that's well, not the concern.
1: Yeah, and I think the the midi the mid range stuff is interesting because I think the the reason he's doing that is because he can't consistently beat his man off the dribble anymore. He can't. Yeah. He is. If it weren't for that kind of newly discovered mid-range game, he would be 100% completely reliant on either breaking a guy's ankles with like a step back move on the perimeter, which to his credit, he's done a few times already in two games, or drawing a foul. And the fact that he's now got this kind of developing mid-range game does give him another avenue, another option to use some of his craftiness and stuff to get to a shot. Because he's just not getting to the rim consistently enough anymore, and This is what, like the second, second and a half straight like season now where we started to see that? Like, I don't think it's just going to miraculously be like, oh, uh, by December, James Harden's the James Harden of old and beating everyone off the dribble. In that sense, while I agree with you, obviously, that Harden's the best ball handler on this team, the best offensive creator on this team and should have the ball much more than anyone else, Tyrese Maxey's probably the only guy on the team that can consistently beat a guy off the dribble. And so they do have to find some ways to get him more involved, even when you like, you know, I agree with Doc Rivers when it comes to like, this isn't a democracy in the NBA, your best players and your best ball handers, like your best offensive initiators need to have the ball. But I'd put Tyrese Maxey, you know, in that category, not at the level of Joel Embiid and James Harden, but certainly much closer to them than the rest of his teammates. So he should be, you know, more involved than he's been through two games. And then, yeah, I mean the the only thing left to talk about that I was going to say, I and mean, we've already kind of touched on it, is the Embiid stuff. It's not, it's not that I think you know, oh, he's going to struggle offensively all year. He's not going to produce. He will, but it is concerning how, like I just talked about, how reliant Harden is on needing to either break someone' uh, ankles on the perimeter for a step back three or get fouled. Like Joel Embiid through two games looks completely reliant on the whistle and on drawing fouls to create his offense. And do I think that's going to be the case for the next six months? No, but like, is it somewhat of a concern and and maybe the beginning of a red flag that we're seeing that a couple games into the season, potentially, I, I guess the question is, is like, given everything I said about how, if this happened at any other point of the year, it's just a slump versus, you know, all we have to look, my question, I guess for you would be at what point would that like change in your mind? Like, okay, say Game three, it like, Embiid still looks like this offensively, turning the ball over, like, not really being able to create other than drawing fouls. Game four, like, how many games or, like, how deep into the season would this have to continue before you start saying, like, oh, okay, this is officially a concern. Like, maybe this is going to start being a trend as opposed to, a, you know, a mini slump.
0: <sighs> I, I don't really know how to answer that. Like, I guess we'll just, yeah. like, we'll be back here every week talking yeah. about it, and it's something we'll obviously keep an eye on. So we'll, we'll just see how it progresses, I guess. By but the way, will... sorry. Now, now I'm going to interrupt
1: you because the the only thing I forgot is I just want I just wanted to throw the numbers out. I was I forgot okay. to throw out at the beginning of my beat thing, which is just 41 points on 53 individual possessions through two games, 10 turnovers versus eight assists. Yeah, and then obviously, if anyone watched the game, scoreless in the second half of that home opener.
0: Yeah. So here's the thing that I'll spotlight and say as maybe some, like an area of concern, and it's not anything new. And maybe that's the problem is that it's, we haven't seen any progression in this regard. And it's just, I mean, a, we saw in the Celtics game, just like not really handling pressure. Well, like they were swarming him with blind double teams and swipes and dig downs. And he just didn't deal with that. Well, and some of that was the Sixers' spacing and they were just a little bit too static on those post-ups. But a, a lot of that is Embiid in his decision-making. And this is like, I don't want to harp on this too much because it's not a play that very many big men in the league could make effectively. In fact, it's like a tiny handful of them that could do it. But at this point in time, given how much he operates out of the post and how many of these opportunities are available to him and how important it is that he nail this stuff down, it's something that you would hope he would be better at, right? Okay. So the last possession, uh, the, the last offensive possession of the Sixers for the game, The ball that ultimately went off of Max's fingertips out of bounds that, you know, the Sixers caught a huge break and got the ball back. Harden, uh, you know, tried to drive and score on Drew Holiday, couldn't get it to go down. But before that, um, a play that was concerning to me for a couple of reasons. One, just because of like the lack of imagination where Harden had been taking over that game in the second half. But the play call is for a cleared outside for MB to post up Brooke Lopez, who had him in shackles all game. Like, why is that the call? Harden entered the ball to him. Like, keep him on the same side of the floor. Like, run some two-man action. Pick and roll or a dribble handoff with Harden getting downhill. Something like that, rather than just another post-up with all four other guys on the weak side. Like... I just didn't really get that. And they were actually like, if you look at the alignment of the floor, they were perfectly set up to run a hammer action there where Harden, Harden could have come and get the ball. Tucker was on the baseline with Maxi in the corner, like perfectly set up to set that hammer screen. If Harden had gotten down to the baseline to make that pass. Uh, and, and it, like if the, the help hadn't been there, then maybe Harden could have continued all the way to the rim, but like something more imaginative than just the MB post up, but you get Giannis, sliding over into the middle to help. And he's ostensibly guarding Tucker, who's now kind of in the dunker spot. And that leaves Grayson Allen guarding Tucker in the dunker and Maxie in the corner. And his first priority is to take away Tucker because that's the easier pass. And, like, again, this is not an easy thing to do. So I, you know, I don't want to harp on it too much or say that, like, this is why Embiid is a fraud or whatever you might say. (laughs) But... (laughs) <laughs> but he telegraphs his pass right like if that is Jokic yeah he is holding Grayson Allen until the last possible second and keeping him guessing he's either looking him back to the corner and then laying it down to the dunker spot or he's looking him down to the dunker and then making the pass to the corner but Embiid telegraphs the pass man and that's why Grayson was able to get there and tip it off of Max's fingertips and it's like Yes, Embiid has gotten better at this stuff over the years. Last season, you know, was his best passing season, his best assist to turnover ratio by far of his career. But, like, he just still hasn't quite nailed that stuff down. And that is big picture what would stand out to me as, like, a concern for him. Because the mid-range shooting, like, the the sloppy stuff with the handle, like, all that stuff's going to resolve itself. He's going to be fine. He's going to put up huge numbers. But... The, the post passing, the dealing with double teams, that's still an issue. Yeah. And that, I mean, as you know, that's been, you know, a um,
1: point of my frustration with MBD. And as much as I joke about like his, um, like the numbers in elimination games and stuff like that, and previous to last year, some of his numbers in the playoffs in general, once I get past the jokes and we actually just start talking basketball about it, you know, that's always been the frustration for me with him is that like for a guy who, deals with double teams and constant pressure on him when he's got the ball and in the post for as long as he's had to deal with it and who knows that it's coming and who like I'm not even saying he doesn't work on it I'm sure he does but it's like even though it's gotten better I still don't think it's gotten good enough for a player of his stature who's going to be double teamed that much who's going to have the ball in the post that much and that's where like, yeah, if there are things in the first couple of games where I can be like, okay, that is an actual red flag, not that it means he's washed or whatever, more so just that, like, why has this not been, like, fully fixed and addressed yet? That would be it. Yeah. And, like, look, am I sitting here in October saying, well, this is the reason they're not going to win at all? No, because they are talented and, like, even well-built enough, I'd say, this particular team to win it all. I'm not, I didn't pick them to win it. I didn't even pick them to make the East Finals, but not naive enough at all to believe they can't win at all. They very much can. And Joel Embiid is good enough, as anyone with a brain and two eyes should be able to acknowledge, is good enough to be the best player on a champion team. But like many other superstars, he's not perfect. And that this particular bugaboo that he has never been able to shake has continued to haunt him, especially in the playoffs, even though he did address it pretty well during the regular season last year. And if there's a red flag from the first two games, that's it. That is still his bugaboo two games into year, whatever this is now of his career.
0: Yeah. And I just think given that limitation, like that's just another reason for the Sixers to run more stuff where there is another guy on the same side of the floor and you're not clearing it out because when he is passing out of the post and creating three point shots, it is almost always to the same side. Like usually it's just back to the entry passer and that's fine. Cause like usually that's where the defense is going to help from. And, his post-gravity is still absolutely enormous. Like you saw in the Boston game, right? Like, there were, I mean, there was a couple times he kicked out to Tobias on the same side for a three. One time it's just Maxi's dribbling up the floor and Maxi's a huge pull-up threat, right? But Derek White, who's guarding him, is still sagging like 15 feet off of him because he's trying to cheat to the entry pass to Embiid and Maxi just pulls up for an open three. Like, that's what it opens up if you're staying on that same side. And then it's like, okay, if they don't bring the help from the top and they're still bringing it from the weak side. Well, guess what? Then it's a 3 on 2 on that side instead of a 4 on 3 and it's just like less clutter and fewer bodies and that makes the reads and the passes easier. So like I just don't think unless he has a huge mismatch, like going him like him cleared out against Brook Lopez is not a huge like it's just not, no. you know. So unless unless he has somebody that he can really just like put in the basket, I don't really understand clearing out that side of the floor for him. I don't think that's the right way to go. Like have Maxi and Harden, not both of them at the same time, but one or the other, have the, the si- that side of the floor cleared out for two of them. Look, I, I
1: agree with you. Doc Rivers clearly disagrees with you, but I bet you Mike D'Antoni agrees with you and he'll probably be coaching this team in about three weeks. So, <laughs>
0: um, Yeah, okay. So one 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 other small like positive, okay. that 13-0 run that they went on, Yeah, mostly came with Giannis off the court, but it also came with PJ Tucker at the five. And we've talked about this, like that's just not really an option that's been available to them in the past to run those small ball lineups. And I think that's interesting. Uh, And that was kind of when Harden really started to get cooking. So we'll see how how that little wrinkle progresses over the course of the season and whether that continues to be something that they can go to in tight spots. And quickly to the point about like Maxie and Harden and kind of like divvying up ball handling responsibilities. Yeah, I, I again I've said it. I would like to see Maxi more involved. The reality of the situation is Harden still not much of an off ball threat. He just like yeah. he just isn't. Like he he has this like mental block where he doesn't want to shoot, catch, and shoot threes. He's still not really like forming up off of drives or moving around a lot off ball, whereas Maxie is like an incredible off ball player. So it just makes a lot more sense to have the ball in Harden's hands than it does in Maxi's when they're both on the court for that reason. Um, but that's about all the Sixers I can I can stomach for now. So why don't we move on and talk about some other teams that uh, have played their opening games. Who's most interesting to you, Cash? Well, if we're going to talk frauds, we might as well talk late. You know what? Actually, that's not fair. The Lakers aren't
1: frauds. They're just trash. They're bad. We knew they were bad. They were bad last year. But I do think... It's not even necessarily interesting in that it's like something we didn't know, but I think it's interesting in that literally everything we knew was bad about this Lakers team has reared its ugly head through two losses to the defending champion warriors and, you know, co-favorites, LA Clippers. So they've lost to two good teams and they're not good. So the fact they're 0-2, not surprising. The way they've got there, not surprising. But it's so unsurprising that it's almost interesting or at least fascinating. And that is shooting and depth. The Lakers don't have it. Now they have, I guess you could say they have depth in the form of like rotation caliber talent, maybe. But in terms of like, they have guys that can fill out an NBA rotation, I think decently. <clears throat> the problem is they're just not good enough where they're slotted in. So it's like Russell Westbrook, obviously. Russell Westbrook at this stage of his career, we know that like, should not be the third best player or consider himself the third best player on a team with title aspirations since the lakers hilariously have them patrick beverly you know i liked the pickup i thought he made them better Is patrick beverly this team's third or fourth best player right now like again patrick Beverly's a good player but shouldn't be that high in the pecking order right on a team that wants to be good you can keep going down the list like even a guy like austin reeves who i like Shouldn't be one of your five best players. Matt Ryan's a good shooter. Why is he in the... Like, and that's what I'm saying. You start going down this list. Even when you include the three guys that would have been hurt for them so far, Schroeder, Bryant, and Brown, when you look at their like three through 12 in their rotation, however you want to order it, it is as bad as almost any team in the league. Maybe not like the full-on tankers, those bottom five or six, but if you take like every team that even fancies itself a friggin' play in contender. And I don't know, maybe there's like 18 of those in the league, 18 to 20, 18 to 22. I don't know what there is. They're as bad as anybody in that three to 12 spot, which again, we knew shouldn't surprise us. But when you see it in practice, it's like, man, this is terrible. Like, Oh, Ru- Russ is having a bad night. So it's like, uh, Juan Toscano Anderson, who again, I like Juan Toscano Anderson, but it, the reliance on guys like that. I mean, Lonnie Walker has been good for them through two games, but Again, like, I don't know, is Lonnie Walker, has he been their third best player through two games? Probably. That's a problem. Yes. And then,
0: um, yeah, yeah, Sorry, go man. ahead
1: before, but no, before I get to the shooting, what are you going
0: to say? Well, I was just going to say, I don't think it's even really a question of like three through 12, because I think the kind of back end of their bench is totally fine. Yeah. Like their bench on the whole is not that bad. It's more like the three through seven. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. less about depth. Than it is about depth of like high end talent. And like, obviously, the drop off from LeBron AD to everybody else is substantial. And that's also, by the way, the the drop
1: off from LeBron to AD is substantial too.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't, I think ADs look pretty good.
1: (laughs) No? Why? I don't know. I think defensively, I still don't think he's got it fully back. Um, he also had that like weird fall yesterday and didn't look the same after that. So I'll, I'll you know, give the, him... the,
0: the stuff with his back is concerning without a doubt. But like, right. I think when he's been on the court, he's looked good to me defensively. Like he's been everywhere. I, I don't have any concerns really about that. If he's healthy, like if he's healthy, right. uh, I think he, he's looked pretty good to me. Um, and LeBron, I will say. Like he really dialed it up on defense last night, which is not something we saw him do. I mean, you could count on one hand the number of times we saw him as active defensively last season as he was last night. So that's—I'm not saying he's going to do it consistently, but it's a good sign to know that he can still do it. I, you know, they played the Warriors and the Clippers. You know, like those are probably the two Western Conference favorites. Yeah, like two, two, of the, really, two of the two of the three yeah. best teams in the Western Conference, probably. So it's hard to judge based on those two games. And it's definitely precarious, but like, you know, the fact that I think JTAs looked good. I think Lonnie Walker looked really good last night, which is a great sign for them. Like, man, do they need you know another guard to sort of take some of the pressure off of those guys at the offensive end and like the athleticism and the just, you know, know, the open court dynamism that he gives them is an element that they aren't really getting anywhere else now that I mean, Russ is cooked offensively. He just is.
1: Well, poor guy. I mean, he, he had that just really <laughs> sca- like that health scare because he had to come off the bench. I mean, in the preseason, there just almost yeah. wrecked his body having to prepare for a game differently.
0: Well, I mean, coming into a game like maybe eight minutes later than you're used to, that can yes. just wreak yeah. havoc on a hamstring. So, <laughs> uh... no, in,
1: all, in all honesty, I get the point about how, of course, I understand it's a, it would be different. It'd be an adjustment for sure. I'm not you know uh, a high level professional athlete who's been doing one thing his whole career prepares for the game that like comes into the game it is you know at the beginning I I don't want to completely scoff the fact that there's an adjustment period there that's not why you hurt your hamstring dude
0: and it's, it's also like even even if he believes that that's why he hurt his hamstring just don't come out and say it like I'm sorry Just don't
1: it's Especially yeah. when, if you remember, last year he tried to pin some of his back issues, if you remember, on sitting on the bench too long. He was essentially saying, I'm not getting the minutes I'm used to. I'm sitting too much, and it's messing with my back.
0: Yeah, and like, you know, honestly, last night was a game where he shot, what, 0 for 11? Yeah. And two points fought on his ass off on defense, man. Like On Kawhi, too. There, on Kawhi. They had him... There were at least a couple times where it was a switch, but like also at least a couple times where they just straight up had Russ as like the primary on Kawhi back to back possessions, fronting him in the post and stealing the entry pass. Like, it's not for lack of trying, no. you know. We know that Russ is still an insane competitor and he's going to give it everything that he has, but I just, you know, how much does he actually have left to give? I think is a, a worthwhile question to ask at this point, unfortunately. And I don't, I mean, that's the big thing. I don't know how the Lakers are kind of going to get around yeah. that issue without parting with one or both of those first round picks. And I think it's fair to ask is that something they should really be trying to do right now? Like, I understand all the stuff about you have to capitalize. Like, LeBron is going to be 38 in a couple of months. Like, what are you doing if you're not trying to win now? But also, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, it, like, how much of a difference? I don't want to underplay it like Miles Turner, Buddy Heal, like that package would make a difference for this team. But at the end of the day, I think we're talking about the difference between like being a low end playing team or maybe missing the in altogether and like being a home court playing team, you know, like that now, might no, be, that might be the, the order of degree that we're talking about here.
1: And I think that's an interesting point because I think that is in this new, if you want to call it NBA where, you know, I just wrote about, how this is literally like whether you look at um preseason projection systems the odds coming, like championship odds coming into a season however you want to slice it uh this is the most wide open title race coming into a year that the nba has ever seen now you've made the point and i agree with you once the games get going you kind of start to separate the true contenders from not and, and it might look a little more standard but at least coming into a season it's the most wide open the league's ever been what i think is interesting about that is you know, like previously, we would always talk about the no man's land and being stuck in the middle in the NBA as the teams that are like too good to fully tank, uh, not good enough to contend. And those teams were much more of like the teams in the middle, but the middle also included, you know, a team that's kind of like the fifth seed in a conference. You could kind of consider in that mix, right, of that like no man's land. I think the interesting thing with this kind of new look NBA where it is so wide open where, look, we struggled to cut down those two, those season previews of tiered contenders to ended up being I think 16 teams and we we kind of struggled with that right like that's how wide open it is the interesting thing to me is like the new no man's land is lower than it used to be because there are so many more teams that should realistically consider themselves at, at worst fringe contenders but the Lakers to me even though I threw them in that mix just strictly out of respect for LeBron and AD I, I don't think they're actually good enough to even be fringe contenders like as you just mentioned if a team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis if their ceiling after trading for Buddy Hield and Miles Turner might be like, well, maybe they'll be the home playing team. They're not even fringe contenders. I'm sorry, and so they to me represent the new no man's land in the NBA, where it's not necessarily the, the actual middle of the league. It's more so the like the best of the worst, where it's maybe the teams ranked like 18th, 19th through 23rd. Where yeah, they'll end up in the lottery, but their odds in the lottery are not going to be good and they're not good enough to even join this like 18 team field of fringe contenders. Right? And I think the Lakers are kind of like the poster boys for the new no man's land in the NBA. And I get in their case oh, the lottery wouldn't even matter because the Pelicans have their their pick this year anyway, but you you know what I mean about the odds and all that.
0: Yeah. But man, I do think I, Miles Turner could really help them. Maybe a no, the center.
1: D- I do they too. Do. And again, they still have LeBron and AD. Maybe like that kind of infusion, getting a center, even getting Buddy Heels shooting, like it could help. That I mean, I'll just use that to segue to those last couple of points. I was going to talk about that again. Not surprising, but crazy how much they've reared their ugly heads already in the first two games. So the Lakers, we knew they didn't the depth we went over. We knew they didn't have enough shooting around LeBron. They've gone 19 of 85 from deep through two deep games and four of 22 from the corners they are shooting less than 20 percent on corner threes man lebron after the opener very bluntly but very accurately when asked about how like they're generating good looks but not getting them and if you know if he's confident they'll at least start making them his response was to be completely honest we're not a team that's constructed of great shooting it's not like we're sitting here with a lot of lasers on our team very astute point, LeBron. Um, But you know what else doesn't help a toothless offense? And this kind of gets to what I was saying with AD. Again, not surprising. Something we talked about a couple weeks ago when we were joking and skeptically joking about how long this whole, like, the offense is going to run through AD thing is actually going to last because he does not have the playmaking chops to be an offensive fulcrum. Well, guess what? Anthony Davis threw two games Despite having 146 touches and playing 67 minutes, has zero assists. Zero. Now again, some of that has to do with the fact the Lakers can't make a shot. I was you, gonna need, say. you need to make a shot to yeah. have someone get an assist. But still, man, zero assists despite being the number two touch guy on the team. 146 touches, 67 minutes. Well, fun. I could throw the I could touch the ball that much on an NBA court and just throw the ball to you a few times maybe you'd make one out of 30 and I'd get one goddamn dime. Maybe, (laughs) probably, probably not. (laughs) But the fact that I'm even making that joke, but, and then look, so that's all that out of the way. And then I'll just say, even though it's been three and a half years now and it's like, okay, get over it. I'm not really over it. The absolute rotten cherry on top of this grotesquely spoiled Sunday, that is the Los Angeles Lakers is that the best player on the court last night was a guy that they traded for Mike Mascala three and a half years ago. And that was Avicis Zubac. I thought he was the best player on the court last night. He was
0: awesome. And yeah, yeah holy hell could the Lakers use him. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about the Clippers because only one game from them. I think it's going to take a while for them to really hit their stride. But yeah, I do think the Zubac point is an important one because to me, like for all the talk about their wings and man, they are wing rich. Like, that is a big part of how they're going to play. They're going to play small ball a lot. Robert Covington at the center. Uh, Marcus Morris at the center or Batum at center. But, like, it depends on the opponent and it depends on the situation. But, like, the majority of the time over the last couple of years, I would say they've looked at their best when he's been on the floor.
1: Yeah, I thought the only Clippers note I really wanted to make, I mean, the, the Kawhi coming in the, mid- the middle of the second quarter, that's the obvious talking point. But, like, from a basketball perspective, the the really interesting thing I thought was um, how good the Wall Zubac two man game looked, and and just that how that's an interesting wrinkle that I'm sure will only further develop as as they develop chemistry as the season develops and also as Wall just gets healthier and more comfortable. I thought I thought the two of them together did really good work, and I think especially I know Zubac starts, but I, they're gonna have plenty of time together. I think against opposing bench units too, and I think they can really make some hay the two of them together against opposing
0: reserve units. Yeah, for sure. And I do think, you know, the five out lineups can work for wall too. Like just yeah. having the floor spaced for him to blow by guys and get to the rim. But it also really helps guards to have good screeners and good role men. Like, and you talk about, you know, the wall Zubach two-man game, man, the Kawhi Zubach two-man game has been really effective in the past. Same as the PG Zubach two-man game. Like those guys all love playing with him because he is a great screener. He's got really good hands and he's an awesome finisher. Like the, the they're kind of rushed to just cast him aside and say oh the small ball covington at five like uh, covington looked pretty bad last night (laughs) so i don't like you know and he's getting up there in years i i just don't know if that's a look that they're ultimately going to be able to rely on you know outside of you know situationally depending on matchups so um all right let's move on from there i want to talk about the pelicans yes sir part of what's difficult when we try to parse this stuff after just like one or two games is you don't have the context, right? Right. Like it's hard to say what is or isn't an impressive win because you don't have the measure of every team. So it's like, wow, the Pelicans curb stomped the nets. Like, is that a really impressive win? Or did they just beat up on a disinterested opponent that is ultimately not going to amount to anything? Um, And I, you know, I think it's interesting looking at it from both sides because you could say Holy hell, the Nets looked awful. But they also just ran into like the worst possible matchup. Like, if you look at their limitations in terms of interior defense, rebounding, things like that, there is no team better equipped to exploit that than the Pelicans. So, all the things we talked about in terms of why the Pelicans could be maybe the best offense in basketball this season, I mean, all that stuff bore out, right? Uh, I think they had a 127 offensive rating and it was way better than that when their starters were on the floor. It was like in the 140s. 62 points in the paint, 21 offensive rebounds. I thought Zion looked amazing. Ingram looked amazing. I really liked like McCollum. Maybe you'd have a little bit of concern. Like I never did, but I know a lot of people were like, "Uh, eh, there's you know the only one ball thing. All these guys kind of need the ball in their hands." I thought McCollum did great work just in the flow of the offense. He was facilitating but also playing kind of a connector role and just not stepping on anybody's toes. I thought he was great. And then we got to mention Trey Murphy. Trigger uh, Trey. Because obviously, you know, you, you picked him as one of your breakout candidates. I loved the pick. And huge risk of confirmation bias after one game. But dude, the combination of like range and quick release on his jumper and the fact that He was a guy who's 6'10", right? Who gets set and gets square to the basket so quickly that they can just do really interesting things with him. And one of them, in the first half, twice, they had him run the Danny Green cut, right? Like sprinting along the baseline from the weak side to the strong side and squaring up and getting a corner three out of that. Um, I thought that was really cool because I remember a game last year where the Suns, just like put them away in the clutch with a series of Danny Green cuts that they didn't know how to handle. And I thought it was cool seeing them work that into their offense and doing it with a guy who's 6'10 who could shoot like that off of movement. Man, I was very impressed. And then the fact that he is 6'10 that he can be kind of like your movement shooting specialist while also being a guy who can go and grab nine rebounds for you, four of them at the offensive end, a lot of them in traffic. Loved everything that I saw from him and from the entire Pelicans team. Like, they were sublime. Uh, and the Nets, I'm sure, will have a lot of opportunities to talk about them in the future. They did not look good. Uh, I thought KD looked very good. Nobody else on that team really did. And they were missing, you know, Harris and Curry, which made a big difference for their offense, of course. But, yeah, just an absolutely dominant showing from New Orleans and one that I think is going to bode pretty well for them looking ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty
1: confident based on what we both expected of this team coming into the year and what we saw from them in game one, that like what we saw from them in game one is what we're going to get for the most part. This team is really, really good. Zion stays healthy. They are a contender in my eyes. Um, one of the interesting things, and you kind of touched on it a bit with McCollum and being a connector and some of the playmaking, when I, I had done a video uh, about the Pels for the score, like unfiltered for the Scores YouTube page, about how, you know, to me, they were like the content, the the newest contender uh, this season. And one of the things I talked about in that script, in that video was that while you can look at the roster and say like, maybe there's not like a true point guard or a true like NBA, you know, starter caliber point guard on the roster that it didn't concern me because the combination of Ingram and McCollum actually gives the Pelicans a lot more playmaking than some teams that have quote unquote pure point guards on the team. Like perfect example last year the pelicans were one of i can't i can't remember what the exact number was now i think it was seven or nine but it was something like they were one of only seven or nine teams last year that had two guys averaging five plus assists and it was those two guys they were one of two teams i think who had two guys averaging 20 and five between scoring and assists so the playmaking and i think you saw it again on the opener i think mccallum and ingram combined for 11 assists like the way this roster is constructed it might not be in the traditional sense of point guard brings the ball up the floor and gets assists but they have enough playmaking and connecting and initiation and scoring and slowly but surely the shooting will start to come too with a guy like murphy like i just love the way this team has been constructed i love the fact that they do all that they absolutely bully you inside zion looked like zion inside in his first game and how long like i just love this team I mean, one of my bold predictions, if you remember, was that I think they're going to be the number one offense. Like this, like it's not being cute or because we're trying to be different to be to say if Zion is healthy, this team is a contender. I truly believe that.
0: I think. I mean, you saw like again, the Nets are maybe not the best litmus test because of their lack of interior defense, but I just I, I just think you saw why they're going to be such a handful. It's not just about having these bruisers. It's like. Zion and JV both. Like those guys have unbelievable touch, like immaculate touch within 10 feet of the basket. So it's, you know, that's the thing. It's like Ben Simmons is trying to guard Zion, right? And he's playing him with the gap, which seems like an intuitive thing to do for a guy who wants to drive the ball and isn't a threat to shoot. But all Zion does is he just like chews up that space and gets ahead of steam. And there's nothing you can do to like slow his momentum at that point. And once he gets within like 12 feet of the basket, it's like one huge stride and this soft finish high off the window. And it's kind of the same with JV where like, yeah, he can roll hard to the rim, but he can also just like short roll to like the free throw line or like the dotted line and drop in floater after floater, you know, and he's going to grab offensive rebounds. And if he grabs an offensive rebound, that ball is going back in the basket. They're they're just going to be an absolute handful. And, I'm just super excited to watch them over the course of the season because they're different, they're fun, and they are loaded with talent. Why don't we take a break there? Uh, We'll come back. We'll talk about a couple more teams that caught our eye, and then we'll do a quick make-or-miss segment. The return.
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: All right, Cash, we have talked Sixers, we've talked Lakers, we've talked Pelicans. Where do you want to go next? So I want to talk a little bit about the Raptors, but not
1: so much about like big picture stuff too much. We don't have to dive nearly as deep as we did into the Sixers and the Lakers or even the Pelicans, but I wanted to talk about a specific thing I observed in their opening night win against Cleveland, and that is their defensive rebounding. So last season, everyone knows, I mean, it was made a big deal all season about their lack of a true center, their lack of a seven footer, their lack of size. They have length, but they don't necessarily have like the true interior size. And despite being this great offensive rebounding team, because it helped them win the possession battle, they were a pretty bad defensive rebounding team. And Even when they got going defensively and started living up to their potential in the second half of the season, end up climbing all the way, I think, to seventh or ninth defensively in efficiency by the end of the season, the the defensive rebounding never really improved. They were not good at it. They finished last season 23rd in the league and 14th out of the 16 teams who made the playoffs with a defensive rebound rate of 71.4% in a season where the league average was 76.8%. During the preseason, it was something I noticed that they seemed to be, whether it was like through gang rebounding and just attention to detail and boxing out, they seem to be better defensive rebounding during the preseason. And I was like, okay, maybe let's see how this can carry over. Let's see if this is actually going to be a point of emphasis for them this season. Opening night against a huge Cavs team with that big front court of, of Allen and Mobley, a team that you would think if they were still, if the Raptors are still a bad defensive rebounding team, it's going to show in this game. Not only were they good, like they were great cleaning the defensive glass in this game. Their in-game defensive rebound rate was 82.9%, again, against a huge Cavs team. So yes, it's one game, but I'd say between the encouraging preseason signs, between who they put this defensive rebounding performance against in, in their opponent in the Cavs, between Pascal Siakamu had a big rebounding game, I think he had nine defensive rebounds himself. His post-game comments where he said that it, it's something Nick Nurse even stressed to him specifically about being a better defensive rebounder this year. I think when you take everything into account, it is a very encouraging sign, despite it only being one game, that they are going to be, they're not going to rebound almost 83% of the team's misses. That They're not going to be the best rebound defensive rebounding team in the league. But I do think they can be and will be a lot better than 23rd. And even if they're like a middle of the if they're like an average-ish defensive rebounding team with the defensive talent on this team and how many times they will get the first stop on a possession or force a turnover or force a tough shot, whatever it is, if you add just average defensive rebounding to the mix, this should be a top five defense in my opinion. And I mean, you could argue it, it might've been a top five defense anyway, but I think it's much more solidified as one if they start finishing defensive possessions with a rebound. And I think very encouraging process and results when it comes to
0: that um, facet of the game in their opening win against Cleveland. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to track just because one of the questions that I've had about that is, you know, is that really something they can improve or is it just a consequence of the way that they play defense, but scrambling yeah. style, putting themselves in rotation, aggressive help, and playing zone a lot too. Like that That stuff just leaves you out of rebounding positions so often that I don't know if they can be, you know, an average or above average defensive rebounding team, but I guess effort can make up for a lot. And just making that effort to like find a guy and box them out. Obviously they have, like I think they have good individual rebounders. Yeah. Like Precious Achua is a really good rebounder. Fred Van Vliet is like, you know, among the best six foot rebounders that you'll ever see like that. He will box out a seven foot dude effectively. So maybe they can do it, but it's, you know, like all things the Raptors do, I feel like it's going to be laborious and something that's difficult to sustain over 48 minutes. But, you know, we have seen the Raptors kind of take on those challenges before and uh, they are a team that can, you know, get by a lot of the time on energy and effort and connectivity. So, That'll be interesting. Uh, That, that matchup was super interesting to me going in just because they're like those two teams are like yin and yang. Like everything that the Cavs have is like the stuff that the Raptors lack, you know, dynamic ball handling (laughs) guards and incredible big men, you know, tons of size up front and everything the Cavs lack is like everything the Raptors have in spades, which is just size on the wing playmaking forwards so it's very interesting, and obviously the you know the the Raptors Formula One out in this game. Darius Garland only played I think twelve thirteen minutes because he got his eye gouged in the first half. Thankfully, he's fine. I don't think there was any damage to the eye. Uh, I, I think it was just like yeah,
1: back, yeah, cut cut of the inside of the eyelid, and mm-hmm.
0: um, I think it's like I can't which, see him missing, which doesn't sound here. fun, but no, not but at all. He, But also worth noting, like, he was having a really bad time before that injury. He was two for eight with five turnovers in those 13 minutes that he played. Uh, Seemed to really struggle with the Raptors' size and physicality. But Donovan Mitchell was incredible in his Cavs debut. That's one of those, that's why
1: they brought me here games. like
0: For sure. Like, it's... Their offense really petered out down the stretch. And... I wonder how this game would have played out if Garland hadn't gotten hurt because I mean, for one thing, like this was the perfect sort of advertisement for, okay, we had all these struggles with Garland off the court last year. Cause we just didn't, especially after Sexton got injured and then Rubio got injured. Like they had no secondary ball handling at all. And now it's like, okay, Garland's off the floor and Mitchell is cooking. Like just cooking. But yeah, it, it petered out a bit down the stretch, and I just wonder if Garland was there, how that would have looked. I wonder how the hierarchy and the division of ball-handling responsibilities is going to shake out between those two guys. Uh, I think both are plenty capable of playing off the ball and you know being more like second-side creators. So I think it should be pretty seamless. But the defense is where it's going to get dicey, I think. And so I wonder you know, what would, what would the trade-off have been? Like if Garland had been out there, I don't think their offense would have struggled as much as it did down the stretch, but I think, you know, their defense, which was already dealing with some challenges trying to match up against a Raptors team that is just like so big at the wing positions uh, would have been that much more challenging. And I think, you know, the Raptors are the type of team that I feel like the Cavs are going to struggle to defend this season because, you know, their their best defenders are are Mobley and Allen. And you want those guys in help. And like the benefit of having both of them is like one of them can be a primary on like a threatening opposing teams player and the other one can still be there as a helper. But as, as high as I am on both of those guys and Allen's rim protection was immense in that game. Like he was unbelievable protecting yeah. the rim. Uh, and Mobley is obviously the sort of Swiss army knife who can do all kinds of different things defensively. I mean, neither of them are really, like, their forte isn't necessarily to guard one-on-one against, you know, an OG Ananobi, for example, who can, like, he's just sturdier than both of those guys with, like, a lower center of gravity. And then Pascal is, like, a little bit too shifty, I feel like, for both of them. And even then, it's like, okay, let's say you want to have Jared Allen guarding Pascal Siakam and Evan Mobley guarding OG Ananobi. Well, then who's guarding Scotty Barnes? You know, like these teams with multiple big playmakers are going to give the Cavs problems. And all three of those guys gave the Cavs problems in that game. And I think that might become a recurring theme.
1: Yeah, that leads me actually to the one thing I want to talk about the Cavs. And I just wanted your thoughts on it because I thought it was really interesting, particularly because of what we're talking about with the Cavs not being able to guard these kind of big playmaking wings is, they started Karis Lavert over Isaac Okoro. Yeah. And, and I thought. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, like, I I understand the like the basketball concept of it, of like it's something we had talked about too, right? Like the the offensive-defensive trade-off when it comes to this team, because it's like, okay, well, you've got these two straight up sieves at the point of attack defensively. And yeah, you can make up for them with the two insanely good defensive mm-hmm. bigs, but you'd ideally like to have a good defensive wing beside them too. Like you don't just want it to be like, okay. Here's the runway, you know, and then hope Mobley and Alan Bailey out, which is why we thought Okoro, you know, would, would be the starting small forward. The flip side is, well, with two non-spacing big men, although Mobley could be a spacer, but like right now, I'd say you'd call him kind of two non-spacing big men. You would prefer more of an offensive player in that three spot to help Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. And that's why they went with Kyrie Levert. And I will say, even though Pascal Siakam had a really good game, I, I actually thought Levert really battled defensively. Like there were a few possessions where like he tried to use his length against Siakam or whoever was guarding. It's not like I think Lever completely crapped the bed defensively, but the defensive ceiling is not the same, right? As having Isaac Okoro in there. So I wanted your take on that and your thoughts on, because it it's not even like, I think we can say, well, it's, it's because it's a matchup thing. Like, because if it was a matchup thing against the Raptors, then it would have been a Koro. So yeah. to me, if, if it's not a matchup thing, then this is what Bickerstaff wants. And Levert might be the starting, you know, small, small forward. Um, but it's more like he's just like a third guard. Uh, so yeah, like what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think that is the best course of action for them? I'm I'm again, I, I can see the basketball logic behind it. So I don't want to say this is a, you know, it's a foolish move, and like what are they doing? It's also early, they can obviously adjust on the fly. But I was perplexed by it, especially because it was against the Raptors, who, as you noted, are like the team that, matchup-wise, they do not match up well with unless they're trying to find extra length to throw in there. Karis LaVert isn't that.
0: No, and he just got trucked by OG on like the few possessions that he he tried to guard him. Um, I I would start Okoro and just hope that Mitchell and Garland can figure it out offensively. I think that's your best bet just because— Agreed. It's asking too much of those guys on the back line, I think. And like, again, you know, Allen especially proved that he was up for it in this game. Like that's the saving grace where they can be like, okay, like we might not be ideally suited to guarding these types of players, but we've got a hell of a safety net behind us. And, you know, I think the Raptors shot under 50% at the rim in this game. So at the end of the day, Like that seems like something that the Cavs can and should live with. Like the Raptors, uh, I think they shot 43% from three, which is not something that they're going to do very often. So I don't, from a process perspective, I don't think this was actually that bad for Cleveland, but I would still, I would still start a Coro, uh, at least until like, until it's clear that it can't work. Yeah. Because I do think, between Garland and Mitchell, like those guys are talented enough and creative enough that they can make the offense work, even with three non spacers on the floor. I mean, we saw Garland on his own basically do it last year. Like the Cavs yeah. weren't a good offensive team, but with Garland on the floor, like they were, you know, the equivalent of a top 10 offense. Yep. And that was starting alongside Okoro, Markkanen, Mobley, and Allen. So, I think with you know Mitchell basically there instead of Markkinen, I feel like they can still make that work, and that is the direction I would go. Just because I think you're too limited defensively on the perimeter with Garland Mitchell and LeVert all out Agreed. there together. Agreed. Okay. Uh, the last game that I wanted to talk about was the Kings Blazers game. Yeah. Um, Where the Kings very much Kingsed. At the yeah, end. I mean, huge play-in implications for these two teams that we expect to be fighting for one of those last play-in spots. And Even
1: though they might both be okay because the Lakers will finish 11th.
0: Possibly. Uh, I thought it was a really good game. Fun game yeah, that, that both fun. teams um, kind of showcased ways in which they've improved. And I'll start with the Blazers because um, the biggest story of this game, at least late in the game, was that the Blazers closed with Justice Winslow at the five. And their closing lineup was essentially Dame, Simons, Hart, Grant, and Winslow. And between Hart, Grant, and Winslow, that was enough to protect Dame and Simons to the point. And, and look, the the Kings aren't like a mismatch hunty kind of team, but like De'Aaron Fox gashed them the entire game. Yeah, yeah, it was like getting, getting downhill, getting into the paint, no problem collapsing the defense. But late in that game with Winslow at center... Like, they were getting nothing. And importantly, he was strong enough to completely lock down DeMontis Sabonis. And that's, like, maybe one of the things you would worry about is, like, okay, you're kind of small. You don't really have rim protection. But Fox wasn't able to get anything at the rim. Sabonis wasn't able to get anything in the post. And Sabonis one of, like, the stronger, better post players in the league, too. So I'm really curious to see if that is something that has staying power for them. Because uh, that was as well as I've seen them defend in like a couple of years, I wanna say. And one of the big questions I had about the Blazers coming into the season is like, what are they doing at backup center? Because it's like Drew Eubanks and nothing yeah. else in terms of like actual backup fives. And, you know, we've talked in the past about Nurkic's ridiculous on off splits at the defensive end and how they've been consistently a top 10 caliber defense with him on and then like, the worst defense of all time, basically with him off. <laughs> um, maybe this is the answer for them. And maybe that's enough for them to, to be that play in team or maybe even a playoff team this year. But I guess on the flip side of that, are we concerned about Dame at all? Cause he didn't look great in this. Yeah. And, and you know,
1: last year when he didn't look great, it was supposed to be cause he was hurt. And then he, he fixed that. Or he was supposed to fix that. But no, I'm not, I'll be honest. I'm not, I think, once he gets his mojo back, if he's healthy, he'll be fine. Now, if there's still some health concerns lingering, that's a different story. But I, I trust Dame enough that I think he'll be fine if healthy. But the, for me, the big takeaway from this game is how encouraging, important, and impressive it was that the Blazers, against a team that they will likely be fighting for when it comes to playoff playoff slash play-in positioning, and on the road in that matchup, in a game where Dame went 5 of 18, ended up winning a close game. Like, I think that is hey does that end up at the end of the day us looking back and saying like ah that was like a one-off and the Blazers ended up being terrible maybe but it could also be six months from now we look back on it and the Blazers outlast the Kings by one game in the standings and we say hey them getting that win on the road when Dame went five of 18 the type of game they do not win the last couple years when Dame has a game like that them getting that win in this new look Blazers squad that's a big win so that, that was my main takeaway um from that from the Blazers perspective is that's that is as silly as it might seem or like maybe we're like reaching to say this win over Sacramento on opening night's huge I, I actually do think that's a huge win again because it doesn't count any less just because it happened on opening night beating beating Sacramento on the road in this matchup when Dame's not playing well huge way to start the season for them
0: yeah agreed uh also really liked what I saw from Shaden Sharp yeah was you know like the, the big mystery man coming out of this draft he had a good and, preseason too. Yeah, just a really nice off-ball mover. Saw some smart cuts from him, and like movement shooting as well. Like the you know the body control and the footwork. Um, he looked solid. So if he can be a player for them, that's huge. And then man, Josh Hart. God, I love Josh Hart. Man, dude. like yeah, and he all, remember how
1: good he was for them after the trade last year
0: too. Yeah, and I mean he he like might be the most entertaining open court player in the league right now. Just a reckless, fearless one man fast break. And um, yeah. So again, like defensively, you know, he was a big part of that closing lineup and between him, Grant Winslow, like, I don't know if it's going to be that alignment anytime because I think like Winslow is actually solid enough offensively in this game. And I don't know if that's always going to be the case. So maybe it's sometimes they're closing with Grant at the five. Maybe sometimes they have to close with Nurk. But I think it's an interesting look because despite the kind of lack of height, uh, there's a lot of length and speed with that front court there where like they were helping a lot. Like they were plugging driving gaps and like they were able to help and recover in a way that kind of gummed up the Kings offense, which up to that point had looked very good. And to that 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 point, just like a quick note on the Kings, De'Aaron Fox looked amazing. Yeah. I'm really excited for the season that he is potentially gonna have. And Kevin Herter just looks like such an important addition for them because I don't know, I'm struggling to think. I mean, I guess healed, right? Like that's that's the kind of spot up threat that they've had that would compare to that. But I think Herter is like a much better defender than healed probably a better like connective playmaker as well. And I I just like his fit there a ton and having those spot up threats around Fox who at his best is like, you know, one of the five best drive and kick engines in the game is super important. Uh, And, and Herter was amazing in that game. Um, I actually thought Sabonis looked defensively pretty stout. Like this was not a good offensive game for him, but played some of the better interior defense and pick and roll defense that I've seen from him. But, on the downside, man, what has happened to Rashawn Holmes? He was he was horrible, like at both ends of the floor in this game. And I know it's been like a big adjustment to him going from, from starting to playing like 15 minutes a game off the bench, but um, he just didn't seem to have the bounce. And uh, I would be a little concerned about that.
1: Yeah, it's one thing for the production to not be the same when your minutes get cut, but for you quality-wise, skill-wise athleticism wise to not look like the same player you were a year or two years ago uh, is strange given that he's not that old. Uh, Any, any other teams that you wanted to hit on quickly
0: before we do make or miss stuff?
1: You know what? I did nothing. I really wanted to dive into. I just had like some kind of like rapid fire things, three things I wanted to throw out um, that I just thought were interesting. One first few days of a regular, of regular season basketball anyway, with the new transition take foul rule in effect. I I thought it was kind of funny that you saw in almost every single game, multiple times where a player, you could see it. The rea- like the instinct was to, to go take the foul and you could see like vi- like on their face, they're like, oh shit, I can't do this. And then pull their hand back and then look deflated as a guy just continues to run and finish the transition break. Thought it was great, but it was a hilarious observation. Yeah. Did, um, by the way, did anyone actually do it by mistake? I, I, yes. Uh, well, I don't know if it was by mistake, or, but uh, opening night, was it in the first game? I think it was in Celtics Sixers. I don't remember if it was a Celtic or a Sixer. It was like in the first quarter of that game, someone got uh, pinged for it. Hmm. And the other team obviously ended up with the free throw and possession. Uh, so that's one just as like a fun kind of like, even though, you know, we're literally only 1.3% of the way through the entire schedule. Observation is that the three best players th- through three games of the and three days of the NBA season so far have been DeMar DeRozan, Rudy Gobert, and Jason Tatum. And then finally... Last observation as the overreaction to one game is that Paolo Banchero is the Pison savior of the Orlando Magic.
0: Man, he was awesome. He was yeah. like so fluid and powerful at the same time. Yeah, uh, I think I maybe mean, I think he's going to be tremendous. I, I would just like the one thing I would you know keep in my eye is like the playmaking. Yeah, looked you know pretty basic, but I again that's not something you're going to be overly concerned about for a rookie playing his first game especially when he scored 27 points on for, what was it like 23 shooting possessions or something like that yeah
1: yeah didn't didn't make a 3 I don't think either to do it um first 25 yeah. 5 5 debut since lebron
0: james and only the third one ever after lebron and grant hill decent company i'd say yeah i didn't actually watch that game i just sort of like went back and watched highlights and kind of uh, revisited some of the plays on nba advanced stats but from what I saw, Ivy and uh Durant Great. both looked incredible in that game yeah. as well. So tell me,
1: man, Detroit's onto something. They've had their la- they've quietly because they've quietly because they've continued to be a losing team, which they likely mm. will be this year again, their last two or three drafts, like they've come out of draft night the last two or three years, each year as one of the winners of draft night. They've got something brewing uh, and, and I hope they stick with it because they I think they could be fun this year and
0: and start to really turn the tide within the next year or two. And to that point, I mean, we talked about Bogdanovich and how much I thought they could, mm-hmm. that he could help them. Great game. He was awesome. Uh, and it, like we saw the kind of stuff that they can do with him, right? Like they they ran a ton of Spain pick and roll with him as like the back screener popping out to three. And it just, again, I, I just cannot believe that he came that cheap. Like what what did Utah get in the end? Kelly Olynyk? right? Like they, they got yeah. Saban Lee and they waived him. Yeah. I think he's playing for, for Raptors nine oh five now. Like he's, <laughs> they didn't even keep him. So it was like they he got traded straight up for Kelly Olynyk. There was no pick involved. I don't think there was a pick involved. If it was, yeah, was it, like it was like, like a, a weird second conditional rounder.
1: second or something. That yeah, very strange.
0: Weird decision for a Jazz team that otherwise I thought made out pretty well when it came to stripping things down and getting good return for their vets yep. and also seemingly still being a juggernaut because they destroyed the denver nuggets my pick to come out of the western conference on opening night uh with colin sexton by the way dropping 20 points in 20 minutes in his the Jazz thing, debut the thing
1: with the jazz in comparison to some of these other obvious tankers is that there is more like veteran nba talent they like legit nba talent there it doesn't necessarily fit together all that well, but there is more pure talent there than a lot of the other tankers Um, and older talent too, not like young guys who could be good. So they're going to catch some teams throughout the year Um, and maybe they'll be like better than, they won't be as bad as some people thought. Like I, I could see the Jazz ending up in like, if they don't do anything else and they just leave this roster intact, maybe like the mid twenties or even like the high twenties and wins, which obviously is a bad team, but it's not like, the 65 lost team some people were expecting. I think that's going to be more in line with, like, OKC, Houston, San Antonio, who looked awful. They got trucked at home by Charlotte yeah. on opening night without LaMelo. So the Jazz, I think, have enough
0: talent that they're going to be better than at least a couple of those teams. And they'll, I mean, they still have some guys to trade, right? They'll move off of yeah. Conley, I would think, at some point. They'll probably try to flip Olinick. Uh, yeah. If Rudy Gay plays the way that he played on opening night, then maybe they'll be able to get something back for him as yeah. well. But yeah, that was obviously, I think that was the most surprising opening night result. Yeah. Um, the one other sort of rapid fire note that I had here was uh Santee Aldama for the Grizzlies. Yeah. He started getting, for them. Yeah. Cause... Like, I, I mean, the, w- you know, one of the things I was most curious about was like, who was going to sop up the Jaron Jackson minutes. And they obviously still want to bring Clark off of the bench They gave the start to Aldama and he had a great game in the opener. So curious to see if that can continue because if they can just ride things out until Jaron gets back, then they have a shot to finish with one of the best records in the Western Conference. Let's leave all that there and let's move on to make or miss. Old segment that we're bringing back this season. For anyone who doesn't know how it works, it's very simple. One of us is going to throw out a, a statement. The other one is going to declare it a make or a miss and we'll each have 60 seconds to make our case for why we feel it is one or the other and we're going to kind of alternate statements so the other person has a chance to respond and then maybe if there's time a little quick rebuttal. So I will kick it off for us here. First make or miss question and I'll just tee it up by saying in that opening night game between the Grizzlies and the Knicks, Mitchell Robinson's starting center, for New York, played 12 minutes, picked up five fouls in those 12 minutes. Isaiah Hartenstein, backup center, played 40 minutes, played a big part in the Knicks' big comeback, getting that game to overtime. So make or miss, Cash, Isaiah Hartenstein will be this team's starting center by Christmas. I'm going to say that's a miss based on the fact of whether he
1: actually ends up starting. I think they stick with Robinson. They ended up extending him. I think he's... Much more part of their future plans, but I do think if you went by merit, then you, you could say Isaiah Hartenstein might be their best center by Christmas, if not already. And I do think I, what I thought you might say is like make or miss Isaiah Hartenstein's the most underrated player in the league because I think he's maybe the most underrated big man in the league, and I think that was one of for as much as we clown the Knicks for what they don't do, I actually thought that was one of the sneaky good pickups of the offseason and I think he's going to find some shooting touch too as he develops in the NBA like I I think Hartenstein's a really good big and he even though they ended up losing that game kind of saved their butts in that game
0: yeah I think we saw all of the the things that there are to like about him even though he missed all of the three-pointers that he took that touch from floater range I think he hit like four or five floaters in that game we saw you know, the passing chops, all the things that Mitchell Robinson doesn't do, essentially, on top of the fact that, you know, Mitchell Robinson picked up the five fouls in 12 minutes, which has been a chronic problem for him. So if it was me, I would call that a make. I think he's going to be starting sooner than later.
1: All right, well, Fawn, Draymond Green, he'll be 33 years old when next season tips off. He hasn't played 70 games in a season in five years, getting up there in age now. Now, I know Draymond Green is the ultimate, you know, he actually gave life, to the whole 16-game player bit. He is much more about the 16 games or 16 wins it takes in the postseason as opposed to the 82 regular season games. But still, given where he is in his career, given the amount of money the Warriors are now spending on everyone else, given the contentiousness now there between Draymond and the Warriors, everyone's talking about free agency with Draymond next year, but he has a $27.6 million player option. Make or miss, Draymond Green picks up his player option and never hits free agency next year.
0: Oh, uh, I think that is a miss. I just, because of all the things you mentioned, because of his age, because of his waning physical ability, it will behoove him to try and get a multi-year deal. And whether that's something that he works at with the Warriors and there's a trade-off where they're able to limit their tax bill for next season by coming in at an annual figure way lower than that $27 million, or whether he just hits the open market and sees if he can get a multi-year deal elsewhere. I feel like it's too big a risk for him to opt in and just, you know, have the one year and maybe just like continue to decline and then won't have that many options available to him the following off season. So I think he'll try to cash in with the multi-year deal, but it's a tough one. Certainly an interesting question. Uh, and one that, you know, I wonder If you were to ask the Warriors, like what they would actually prefer, what they would want him to do, because maybe just kicking the can down the road, not having to make a decision about, you know, a long term deal with Draymond is what they would actually prefer, even if it meant having an astronomical tax bill for the 23 24 season. Um, Okay. My next make or miss for you, Cash, is one that I know you are going to revel in because I know you've been low on this team. And we'll see, I guess, if opening night changed your mind at all, because DeMar DeRozan is still doing DeMar DeRozan things. And Io Desumu looks poised to break out and paper over any backcourt questions they might have in light of Lonzo Ball's ongoing knee issues. But given that Zach Levine is sidelined at the start of the season with more knee soreness after he underwent arthroscopic surgery in the offseason... And we know that's not the first time that he's had issues with his knees. Given all that, given the situation with Lonzo, and the questions that we already had about this team, make or miss, the Chicago Bulls will not only miss the playoffs proper, but will miss the play in. Will finish outside of the top 10 in the Eastern Conference. I.
1: You know, for fun, let's call it a make. Let's 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 go out on a limb and call it a make. Look, this team lost 15 of their last 22 games last year while dealing with injuries to tumble out of the top of the East. And I probably see them actually finishing 10th, which would be the last play-in spot. But let's go out on a limb and call it a make anyway. This is a team that lost 15 of 22 to end last season, tumble out of the top spot in the East all the way down to sixth. Now, injuries played a big part in that. But as you mentioned, injuries are also playing a big part in the beginning of the season. Lonzo's still not there. Zach Levine is missing at least the first two games of the season. Still dealing with, you know, knee issues after uh, having the arthroscopic surgery back in May. DeMar DeRozan, as he did opening night, will save them on a lot of nights. Uh, DeSumus looked good. They still have Vooch. But I think, you know, unless something else happens, like a Patrick Williams breakout or something like that, I don't think this team is good enough in an East that is so good, so deep. If we're talking about, like, if I'm seeing them as even their ceiling might be like ninth or 10th in the last play-in spots... They are teetering on the edge of disaster. So I'm going to say given everything that already looks like it's going wrong for them, it's a make. They're going to fall out of the plan.
0: Wow. Okay, hit me with your last one. All right,
1: last make or miss. After losing to the Warriors on opening night and then losing to the Clippers a couple days later, the Lakers' upcoming schedule goes versus Blazers, at Nuggets, at Timberwolves, versus Nuggets, versus Pelicans. Make or miss, the Lakers will enter their November 4th game against the Jazz, winless, 0-7. I'm going
0: to call it a miss. I think they find a way to win at least one of those games. I feel there has been just enough in their first couple of games to be optimistic about, to think that you know they, they can scratch out a win here or there, even against a tough slate. And I, I would probably circle the home game against the Blazers as the one that they're most likely to win. And maybe with the nuggets kind of working Jamal Murray back and still maybe not being uh, at peak capacity, they can win one of those Denver games as well. But I look, the offense is obviously not in a great spot with the Lakers right now, but I think Anthony Davis has looked good defensively. I think the team as a whole has actually looked pretty decent defensively, certainly way better than last season. So, you know, in spite of the shooting limitations, They're going to find a way to win one of these games, I think, with their defense. Do you think they're better than the Blazers? On par. Yeah, I agree. Not good enough. So there you have it. Make or miss uh, an old beloved segment that we are exhuming, digging up from the grave for this 2022-23 campaign. Uh, Cash, do you want to give us a fan shout out before we sign off here?
1: Yeah, fan shout out this week goes to one of, I know he's been a long time listener, uh, I believe, but I, I tried to go through what records I do have of fan shout outs and couldn't actually find the time we shouted him out. Uh, Chuck Samprini out in Montreal, Semprini15 on Twitter. If we have shouted you out before and I just don't remember, well, then, you know, here, here's a second shout out for you. But anyway, he tweeted last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, saying that he, he tells people every week, but that there's not a better basketball podcast out there than Pound the Rock. So, Chuck. Again, can't remember if we've given you one of these before. Don't think we have. Know you're a long-time listener.
0: Appreciate you uh, supporting the show and spreading the good word. Yeah, I'm almost certain that we've shouted out Chuck before, but what the hell. Uh, he has a fun Twitter presence. I only know him as the guy who has Charlie Utter from Deadwood as uh, his avatar, but uh, that alone is enough for me to uh, give him my stamp of approval. So thank you, Chuck, for listening. Thank you to all our listeners. and. I'll say it because Cash didn't this time. Uh, Call out. The usual call out to all of our listeners. If you're a fan of the show, if you have an issue with the show, reach out, find us on social media. I'm at Joey underscore W on Twitter. Cash is at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter. You can email us, joseph.cacharo at score.com or joe.wolfon at score.com or find Cash on Instagram at joe underscore 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 Cash. Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been listening, Uh, And again, what kind of feedback you have, good or bad. And we will be sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. Cash, if you have anything to add to that, feel free. If not, I think we're going to put a bow on this.
1: Yeah, nothing to add on my end.
0: So there's our first episode of the actual real 2022-23 NBA season. Plenty more to come as the season progresses. Very much looking forward to uh, seeing these sample sizes grow and coming back with more and more detailed takeaways. We'll be back next week. We'll talk to you all then. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.